to a reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February 26th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. Let's start off today with the article, Hot Meal, Salvation Army Continues to Feed Bodies and Souls in Spite of Fundraising Shortfall. Loaves and fishes. In the hands of Jesus, little became enough to feed multitudes. Kathy Ford knows something about what it feel, that feels like. As the cook responsible for the Salvation Army's noon lunch on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, she knows what it means to stretch her food budget. Her hot lunches must fill the bellies of 70 to 80 people. Sometimes she supplements a meal with homemade soup tossed together from pantry ingredients. Occasionally, extra side dishes have filled in for less protein on the menu. Ford also believes strongly in the power of prayer. We like to say that Kathy has the red phone to God, said Grace Fee, social ministries director. If she speaks it, she gets it. One day, she was hoping to make nachos, but there was no chips in the pantry. The next day, two pallets of tortilla chips were delivered. She prayed for potatoes, and miraculously, potatoes were donated. Sometimes, it gives her the chills, Ford says. It strengthens me every day. I believe that I will have what I need to feed people. Whatever comes out of this kitchen must be good, taste good, and look good. It may be the only meal these people eat will eat that day, or the only hot meal they'll get for the week, she explained. But the Salvation Army will be faced with a tighter budget in the coming months. The annual Red Kettle Christmas campaign failed to reach its overall $776,000 goal. We were truly blessed by our community's generosity, helping us raise $553,000, but with but it's with sadness that we report a significant shortfall, amounting to $223,000, said Katie Harn, volunteer and community relations coordinator. Major Martin Tynes said the week before Christmas usually accounts for almost a fourth of the Red Kettle goal. Those funds didn't materialize. People are very generous right before Christmas, and you picture a light snow falling, the bells ringing, all the hallmark moments. But we had a blizzard, an extreme cold with 30 below wind chills. We didn't, put out an, we didn't put out the bell ringers, and nobody was out anyway, he noted. Even so, the biggest shortfall was in our mail appeal. We did an extra appeal at the end of the month, and the public responded to that. The targeted letter campaign has raised an additional $50,000. While ongoing donations will help bridge the gap, Thien said his focus is now trying to do more with less. It feels a little like things are beyond our control. All nonprofits live to a year, live year to year, how much money we can raise, what we can do, where we can tighten our belt. We hope enough money continues to come in to support our programs, but we're not here to make money. We're here to serve and give, Thai said. Local need for social services has dramatically increased over the past two years. According to the Salvation Army's social services comparison, the organization sheltered 577 individuals in 2022, a 40% increase since 2020, and provided 12,044 nights of shelter, a 41% increase. Visitors to the Perishable Goods Pantry jumped from 8,022 in 2020 
9,819 2021 to 18,995 in 2022, a 137% increase. Due to decreased donations and to ensure consistency, the food pantry is now open only on Thursdays. Martin expects the real crunch will will come in the next few months as the budget is reassessed. That's when we're going to see the real impact. We'll spend the next few months looking at what it's uh, looking at what's got to give," he said. With a budget of one point nine million dollars, we have to do less assistance. We've already made some cuts, and we're not filling or rehiring for open positions. That's a struggle because we're short-handed. Noon lunches is one of many valued services at the Salvation Army. In 2022, 49,971 meals were served, a 42% increase from the 35,208 meals served in 2020. Kathy is an amazing cook who has developed the food program as a ministry. Food is a basic human need, and there's something very healing about a good meal. Kathy's prayers being answered is a testimony to the need and the God, and that God is really blessing that program in a specific way, said Thighs. I don't know how it happens, but I know the support is there. It's bigger than myself, said Ford. Her days customarily start early with food prep and cooking. She allows herself enough time to give volunteers their tasks ranging from serving food to bussing and sanitizing tables. It's just nice to be part of something that helps other people. What I do here is small, but it gets me out of the house and doing something meaningful. I just want to help, said Bill Haywood. The retiree has volunteered for two hours each Monday and Wednesday for the last six years. People begin lining up a half hour or so before the meal is served, and Ford makes sure that she's out front to greet each person. I want to know everyone, I want everyone to feel welcome. That strengthens me. You get to know their stories and their struggles, she said. Sometimes they just want someone who will listen. Most people I live, most people live on a razor's edge, and there's but for the grace of God go I. All it takes is, a, is losing a job or the place you live to be right there. Ford, who has five children, has been a professional cook for nearly 30 years, including working at Harmony House. She's been at the Salvation Army for two years after reading a Courier article about the need for a cook. I was spreading newspaper on the table for the grandkids to start carving pumpkins, and I just started reading. All I could think about was, that's my job, she recalled. Ford walked into the, sal- into the Salvation Army the next day, and she said that she was here for her job. Her conviction, compassion, and faith, and all of her experiences cooking had prepared her for this role, Fee said. She's taken it from service to a ministry. Food is for both body and soul. When you break bread together over a meal, it impacts the soul in a positive way. Kathy makes people feel seen and cared for, he explained. And we don't know why everyone comes, but everyone is equal at our table. All needs are met equally. The Christmas lunch was particularly memorable for both Fee and Ford. It's not unusual to have 150 or so folks show up for the holiday meal, but frigid weather reduced the number served to just over 50. One man was undeterred by the weather, though. He walked from Evansdale to the Salvation Army in Waterloo through the blizzard and cold for his hot meal. We later found out that he was living in a tent, Fee recalled. 
There's always a need. Everyone left with a full belly that day, Ford added. Doug, who didn't want to give his name last who didn't want to give his last name, manages to make it to noon lunches three days a week. Otherwise, I wouldn't get a hot meal. She comes over to your table to ask you how you are, and you can tell she really cares about people. The food is good, and that's another way you can tell she cares. It's a more loving place, and if people feel people leave feeling better, he said. Thighs is proud of what the Salvation Army accomplishes. In the community, whether it's providing hot meals, shelter, youth activities, or rent or utility assistance. We're a Christian organization, and whether we are in surplus or drought, the Lord will provide in some way or means. We've seen that in the past, and that's our hope, he said. Donations can be made in person or by mail at P.O. Box 8867 in Waterloo, Iowa, 50704. For more information, call 319-235-9358. Now on to a very different article. Update. One dead in Evansdale house fire. One person died in a fire that gutted an Evansdale home early Friday. The deceased identity wasn't immediately available, pending notification of relatives. Firefighters and police were called to the home of, at, eight, at 840 Grand Boulevard. Around 445, the group spotted heavy smoke and flames coming from the house. One man escaped from the burning house on his own without any serious injuries, but a second person, a woman, didn't survive, authorities confirmed. Crews from Evansdale, Fire Rescue, Gilbertville, Raymond, and Waterloo responded to the blaze. The cause of the fire hasn't been determined, and the Iowa Marshal Division has been contacted to investigate. Now on to another article. YouTuber sentenced to jail takes aim at juror who is a Waterloo City Council member. A social media content creator sentenced to jail on allegations he hampered police when they arrested his neighbor in April lashed out at a Waterloo City Councilman who sat on the jury. Hours after Bow James Bish, 31, who was sentenced to 10 days in jail for a misdemeanor interference, he released a six-minute video rehashing, rehashing the case, calling the court corrupt and calling for action. Maybe it's time to take this to where they live and peacefully protest outside of their homes, Bish said. Do you think an army of armed patriots can make real change? Let's see. He also took aim at John Childs, a Waterloo City Council member who served on the jury, posting his phone number and email address with a screenshot showing it on the city website. In the video, Bish said that Childs had said that he would be hesitant to side against the same police he works with. Childs, who didn't attend the sentencing, said on the phone and email began blowing up Friday afternoon with what he said were Bish's followers threatening him. The messages included typical racist attacks, said Childs, who is black. He said that he reported the harassment to court officials. Childs said that he didn't want to be on the jury and had mentioned that his city council position and the possible conflict it could create at least six times during voir dire. The defense could have stricken Childs during the jury selection for those very reasons, but chose to let him remain on the panel for the trial. I don't understand why I was on that jury, he said. 
Even so, Childs said that he put aside his feelings and decided the verdict along with the jurors based on the testimony. That's what the evidence showed. We gave him a fair trial, Childs said. He said that he was frustrated that the defense allowed him to remain on the jury and that Bish criticized the fact that he was on the jury. Childs said that he is worried about others on the jury who may now be targeted. The incident started April 1st when Bish's neighbor on Adams Street was being arrested on sexual abuse and false imprisonment charges, according to court records. Police said officers needed to secure the area for their safety and the safety of others. Authorities said that officers told Bish to back up when he was standing on the sidewalk filming police struggling with the neighbor in front of the neighbor's residence. When Bish didn't move, officers twice pushed him back, leading him across the street. He continued filming from other positions and hurled insults at officers until he was detained. At sentencing, Judge Brooke Jacobson followed the state's recommendation and sentenced Bish to 30 days in jail, suspended to 10 days in jail after a year of self-probation on charge of misdemeanor interference. He also imposed a $250 fine plus court, court costs and surcharges. The jail time can be served in 48-hour increments, and the probation terms allow Bish to leave the state. He indicated that he plans to return to Colorado to live near family. During the sentencing hearing, Bish, an Army combat veteran, talked about his service in Afghanistan and the resulting post-traumatic stress disorder. I take the sacrifices of those who fought for our country seriously, Bish said. Bish said he plans to appeal the verdict and the sentence. Now on to a, another article. Boeing to end production of Top Gun plane. Even Top Gun couldn't save the F-18 Super Hornet. Boeing announced Thursday that it expects to end production of the fighter jet in, the, in late 2025 after a final delivery to the U.S. Navy. Production of the plane could be stretched out to 2027 if India places an order. The company said the first F-18 debuted in 1983 and was built by McDonnell Douglas, which merged with Boeing in 1997. More than 2,000 Hornets, Super Hornets, and Growlers have been delivered to the U.S. military and the government of many allies, including Canada, Finland, Australia, and Malaysia. But the plane's fate has been in doubt in recent years. The Navy has not planned to buy any Super Hornets after the fall of 2021, citing the age of the planes in design. Only an act of Congress kept production running. News of the plane's curtain call comes less than a month after Boeing delivered the last of its iconic 747 jumbo jets that has been used in passenger and cargo service for half a century. Boeing said ending the F-18 production will let it focus on future military aircraft, both crewed and uncrewed, and increased production of other defense programs. The company said it plans to build three new facilities in St. Louis, where the F-18s are assembled. We're planning our future, and building jet aircraft is in our DNA, said Steve Nordland, vice president of Boeing Air Dominance Division. The company said it will continue to develop upgrades to the current fleet of F-18 Hornet, F-18 Super Hornets and EA-18G Scrowlers. 
The latter is a carrier-based electronic version of the jet. The Super Hornet featured prominently in the 2022 movie Top Gun Maverick, with Tom Cruise reprising his role in a 1980s movie about a Navy pilot. The sequel got positive reviews and was among the highest-grossing movies of last year. Now let's read the article. The Way of the Guns. Firearm Enthusiasts Flock to Hippodrome. Hundreds of firearm enthusiasts came out to take a shot at buying new guns and accessories this weekend. The Midwest Arms Waterloo Gun Show was held at the Hippodrome at the National Cattle Congress. The show continues from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Sunday. Tickets are $10 and children 12 years and older, and children 12 years old and younger can get in for free. Dave Johnson, a Cedar Falls customer, said Sunday is the best day to go because nobody wants to pack up. And it's not just for guns for sale. Enthusiasts can purchase accessories and gun parts such as stocks, grips, barrels, holsters, and rests. Johnny Pearson of MAC Shows, which puts on the gun show, said attendance has been down this year. She attributed that to the economy and rising prices, causing people to cut out expenses for entertainment. Mac Shows of Missouri has had three shows at the Hippodrome per year for the last 15 years. Although the state doesn't regulate gun shows, the show holder has rules to follow, such as not allowing loaded weapons in the building, those entering with a gun are required to have it checked by MAC Shows, as of July 1st, 2021, firearms permits are no longer required to purchase handguns in the state, but some vendors with federal firearm licenses choose to require a permit in order to complete the sale. One vendor that does, ta- that does is, take a, is Take A Shotguns of West Union. Owner Chris Blue says buyers must fill out paperwork and have a permit. If a customer doesn't have the necessary information, we will run a background check. Blue said that he's content with the current gun laws in the state, but believes that there is still a lot of government overreach. However, he added more gun control laws result in an uptick in sales. People worry when they see the government trying what they have, trying to get what they have, Blue said. It's a roller coaster. Another shop owner, John Cardis, who is from Northeast Illinois, said that he believes Iowa has fair gun regulation. It's on a track to the needs of people with a reasonable realm of regulation, Curtis said. He compared Iowa's laws with laws in Illinois, saying that Illinois goes extreme but doesn't always enforce certain aspects, such as keeping guns out of the hands of felons. Curtis also praised Iowa voters for recent adoption of an amendment to the Iowa Constitution securing the right to keep and bear arms. Iowa became the fourth state to enshrine strict scrutiny language that protects gun rights in its state constitution. The other states are Alabama, Louisiana, and Missouri. Voters approved the addition of the amendment in the, two, in the November 8th election. About two-thirds voted yes, while about one-third voted against it. Multiple bills regarding guns are currently alive in the state legislature. In one proposal, K-12 students would be given firearm instructions as a part of their school's emergency operation plan. Another bill advanced last week would allow adults to keep a gun in their car while on the property of schools, corrections, facilities, and casinos.
Now let's go on to the article. Grassley says inappropriate books should be removed from schools during Waverly Town Hall. Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley told a crowd Friday that he will never waver in his belief that inappropriate books should be removed from schools. The new Hartford native held open the book Gender Queer up to about 50 people who attended a town hall meeting at the Waverly Public Library. He expressed confidence that the legislature will soon keep public and private schools from sharing such material. Grassley, the District 57 representative, contended that he spends half of every single day having conversations about books in multiple school districts. He sees no alternative to the common-sense solution of removing the books. We're the adults. We cannot ignore these kind of things, said Grassley. He received a round of applause on his stance before pivoting to another school issue and receiving some scrutiny from those in attendance. The Republican speaker argued that schools should be required to inform parents if their child is considering a change in gender identification or any life event. Now he said that some districts mandate that private information stays between the educator and the child. Grassley said that he thinks that people who support such views have lost their mind. No offense to our school districts, they are not the place to solely manage those kinds of conversations. These are conversations between families that need to take place, Grassley said. Maybe the schools play a role in that. I'm not saying that's not part of it. Gail Allison of Iona said Grassley didn't realize that not all parents are like you. She pressed him on why he thought such children, why he thought children don't go to their parents to discuss topics such as gender. If the child is fearful to talk to their own folks, she said, maybe she, maybe they go to a trusted adult at school. And now you're forcing that adult or teacher at a school to out the kid. They have no one to talk to then. Maureen White of Cedar Falls was an educator for more than 30 years. A few parents are abusive, she thought. She kept the information in confidence out of a concern the student might be physically punished if a parent learned it. White argued that if Grassley had his way, it would have the opposite effect from what he's envisioning. We should not be putting teachers and counselors in the position of having to force a child to tell their parents, she said. While the passion shone most brightly on the topics of reading materials and parent involvement, conversations about other issues occurred during the one-and-a-half-hour event, including property tax relief on the three-carbon capture pipelines proposed to pass through Iowa. Grassley zeroed in on the tax proposal of his caucus, starting with a 3% gap on assessed property value growth each year. This would be that... This would be done in part to help people on fixed incomes who've paid off the mortgage on their homes. Sometimes, property taxes rise even though no improvements have been made to a house, and the resident can't afford the increase. We continue to have a higher collection of revenue at all levels of government yet. In lots of cases, there is never a vote to raise a levy to raise your tax to collect more revenue, said Grassley. How do you collect more revenue without increasing the tax? It shouldn't be through an unelected process through the assessed value. In regards to the pipeline legislation, there are a range of views in his caucus and some members are not fans of what of what's proposed.
However, he believes what's in the language is a baseline and may be amended, but is ultimately legislation that has the best chance of one day being signed into law. Companies would have to obtain 90% of easements voluntarily based on miles of pipeline route before seeking permission for eminent domain. The way we're going to be able to get something forward is by placing it as much on a focus placing as much of a focus on eminent domain as possible, he said. But attendees had concerns beyond eminent domain. Dennis Epley, president of the Waverly Shell Rock School Board, voiced his concerns with the proposed path of Navigator's pipeline passing by three schools, which two of which are in the midst of being built. All three of these schools would be in danger, he said. We spent well over a year trying to find sites that would be safe for traffic and be convenient for future home development around these schools. And then we get this issue that hits us in the face. The bill would require the pipeline project to wait for a new federal safety standards and follow local and county ordinances. George Cummins of Charles City called, the, called for the names of the investors in the pipeline project to be released to the public. I'd be interested to know who's losing money if this doesn't go through, he said. Now let's go on to the article. Waterloo Cedar Falls failed to qualify for $5.6 million Destination Iowa grant. Cedar, Fall, Cedar River amenities between Waterloo and Cedar Falls don't qualify at this point for a $5.6 million Iowa Economic Development Authority grant. The city's partnered in a request to Destination Iowa program, which has been giving out funds since June from a pool of $100 million in federal COVID-19 relief money for public and private transformational tourism projects. Black Hawk County's largest municipalities had anticipated the grant would play a role in bringing to life a larger placemaking vision for connecting the two downtowns through the Cedar River. The Cedar Valley River Experience applications submitted by the cities of Waterloo and Cedar Falls received a score of 66, said Kenan Kappelman, an IEDA spokesperson. The program requires an average score of 70 to be considered for funding. Kappelman would not comment on any deficiencies in the application that led to the below average score until the final round of funds has been exhausted. Those ideas are slated to be announced in the coming weeks as IEDA continues to review and score applications. Received by the deadline on December 31st, she said, a new whitewater course in downtown Waterloo was slated for $4.5 million of the $5.4 million in funding for the city in the application. Cedar Falls would have received $226,478 from the grant if all had gone as planned. Cedar Falls' share of the proposed fundings was significantly smaller, in part because recreational improvements to the river between 1st and Main Streets, Main Street Bridges already had received a $1.5 million grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration. The Waterloo and Cedar Falls application was submitted in September after months of collaboration between the cities, Grow Cedar Falls, Grow Cedar Valley, Iowa Northland Regional Council of Governments, and other stakeholders. However, work to bring about that dream will continue on without funding. The original application outlined 
$14.09 million in estimated project costs, although the cities needed to match 60% of it. Waterloo's funding sources took a little bit of time to compile and eventually were identified as the Blackhawk Gaming Association, the Waterloo Development Corporation, John Deere, and tax increment financing dollars. Most, if not all, of the proposed Cedar Falls funding was eventually removed because it because was removed because was because lighting for bridges along the river was not deemed as a qualifying expense. Officials were told. Cedar Valley President and CEO, Grow Cedar Valley President and CEO Carrie Dara, told the Cedar Falls Community Main Street Board of Directors early this month that the application was denied after the EDA had carved out the Cedar Falls piece of it. She referred the courier to Noel Anderson, Waterloo's Community Planning and Development Director, for further questions, but he couldn't be reached to comment on the matter. It's, a dis- it's disappointing, but on the other hand, it's not surprising, Dora told the board. We thought we responded with what was asked, transformational, regional, be bold, and every time the EDA came back with a request to change it. It kind of took, it kind of took it down a not- another notch, she added. Another small improvements were made to Waterloo's Cedar Bend Park, Pioneer Park, Riverview Recreation Area and San Sois area uh, Island. In addition to the bridge lighting, the Cedar the city of Cedar Falls also had funds allotted for improvements to Olson Tourists Washington and Island Parks. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February twenty sixth on Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Michael Lewis Weber. Michael Lewis Weber, 73 years old, of rural Jessup, Iowa, died Thursday, February 23rd at his home. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, March 1st, 2023 at the St. Anthanaus Catholic Church in Jessup, with burial in the church cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 28th at the White Funeral Home, Jessup, Iowa, where there will be a parish rosary at 4 p.m. and the vigil service at 7 p.m. Visitation will continue for an hour before services Wednesday at the church. Memorials will be directed to St. Anathos Church and School in Jessup and the Bosco System in Gilbertville. Online condolences may be posted at www.white-mounthope.com. Mike was born October 13, 1949, in Waterloo, Iowa, the son of Francis Joseph Weber and Patricia Ann Breuer Weber. He graduated from Don Bosco High School, Gilbertville, with the class of 1967. He then attended Hawkeye Tech in Waterloo for two years, where he learned and learned the tool and die trade. He then became a tool and die tradesman for about 20 years, working at H&H Tool, Progressive Tool, and Bachman Tool and Die. Mike also farmed and drove for Stefan Trucking. His love of riding motorcycles took him to many places from Alaska, more than once, to Key West, Florida, and from Massachusetts to Oregon. He amassed over $500,000 500, miles 
riding his cycles and was the fearless leader of the Sunday Riders of, of the Sunday Rides. Mike is survived by seven brothers: Nicholas Weber of Jessup, Frank Weber of Independence, Charles Weber of Jessup, Philip Weber of Fairbank, Dennis Weber of Independence, David Weber of Waterloo, Alfred Weber of Waterloo, and three sisters: Kathleen Weber of Hubbard. Oregon, Mary Sue Moore of Manhattan, Kansas, and Annette Ingalls of Jessup. He was preceded in death by his parents, two sisters, Ruth Weber and Jane Story, and three brothers-in-law, Colonel Highland Seymour and Kevin and Bruce Zimmerman. White Funeral Home, Jessup, Iowa, is in charge of the arrangements. Karen Pearl West. Karen Pearl West, 71, of Denver, Iowa, and formerly of Fairbank, of Fairmount, Nebraska, passed away on Saturday, February 18th, 2023, at her home after a brief battle with cancer. Karen was born on September 30th, 1951, in Geneva, Nebraska, the daughter of Reuben and Pearl Ackerman. She graduated from Fairmont High School in 1969 and then attended the Lincoln School of Business. Karen was united in marriage to Dwight Allen West on June 17, 1971, in Fairmont. Karen and Dwight made their homes in Fairmont together, and together they raised Kendra and Ryan. Karen worked for the Fillmore County Abstractor for a long time before becoming the owner of the Cottonwood Title Company. Karen retired in 2018 after Dwight passed away and then moved to Denver. Karen was also Karen was known for her talent as a crafter and quilter. She most recently had been making purses for a local shop in the Cedar Valley. Upon moving to Denver, she became friends with a group of ladies and enjoyed her many trips with them. She loved her longtime companion, her dog Loki. Karen is survived by her daughter, Kendra Larson, and her son, Ryan West, both of Denver, her four grandchildren, Emma of Sac City, Alexander of Cedar Falls, Isaac and Ethan, both of Denver, and a sister, Barbara Votepec, uh, of Exeter, Nebraska. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband Dwight, and a sister, Sandra Boquist. A memorial service will be held at 2 p.m. on Monday, February 27, 2023, at St. Paul United Church of Christ in Denver, with Pastor Craig Henderson officiating. There will be a one-hour visitation prior to the service at the church. A burial of her remains will be held at a later date in Fairmont, Nebraska. Online condolences may be left at www.kaisercorson.com and memorials may be directed to Cedar Valley Hospice. Kaiser Corson Home in Denver is assisting the family and their phone number is 319-984-5379. Dale and Marinin Nelson. Dale Edward Nelson, 79, of Brooklyn, Iowa, passed away Monday, February 6, 2023, at the Cedar Valley home. Dale was born August 24, 1943, in Waterloo, Iowa, to Merrill and Lena Nelson. Marianne Nelson, 80, of Brooklyn, Iowa, passed away Sunday, February 12, 2023, at the Cedar Valley Hospice home. Marianne was born September 1, 1942, in Parkersburg, Rural, to Adolf and Ubena Riddler. Dale married Marianna Ritter on June 1, 1963. 
They are survived by their loving family, their children, Scott, Michelle, and Janice, their, chil- their grandchildren, Ashley, Timothy, Tori, Hannah, Caitlin, Jacob, Isaiah, and Matthew, and their great-grandchildren, Nicola, Coda, Colton, Adeline, and Aubrey, Dale's sister, Barb, and brother, Ronnie, and Marianne's brother, Johnny. They are preceded in death by their parents and Dale's brothers and sisters, Darlene, Meryl, Mary, Donnie, Gerald, and Paul. They will be missed by the many people who have crossed their paths during their lifetime. There will be a celebration of life held June 3rd at Holiday Lake. In lieu of flowers or gifts, we ask that donations be sent to the Cedar Valley Hospice Home in Waterloo at 2001 Kimball Avenue, 50702 in their memory. Keith C. Coburn. Keith C. Coburn, age 66, of Prairie du Chien, passed away Wednesday, February 22, 2023, at Crossing Rivers Health in Prairie du Chien. He was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on December 24, 1956, to Dwight Sr. and Mary Jane Coburn. Keith moved with his family to Waterloo, Iowa, where he grew up. He drove truck for many years to for Westside Transport and later for Kirk Trucking Company. After moving to Prairie du Chien, he worked for Prairie Beer. Keith met Sharon Fraser in 1992, and then in 2000, they purchased, owned, and operated Fraser's Old Faithful Inn in Prairie du Chien for 22 years, where he enjoyed serving and spending time with his patrons. Keith loved spending time with his family, boating, and spending time on the Mississippi River. He also loved airplanes, flying, and collecting Hot Wheels cars. Keith is survived by his life partner, Sharon Fraser, his children, Stephanie Kramer, Chad Coburn, Julie Bradshaw, his siblings, Dwight Coburn, Dwight Coburn Jr., and Lisa Hansen, his grandchildren, Ryan Schillig, Sage Kaufman, Melina Whaley, Alora Trass, Skyler and James Coburn, Alyssa King, and Phoenix Bradshaw, his great-grandchildren, Elijah and Everly Schilling, his nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents and his grandson, Brett Kramer. According to Keith's wishes, there will be no formal funeral services. Private inurement will be at a later date in the Mount Olivet Catholic Cemetery in Waterloo, Iowa. The Garrity Funeral Home in Prairie du Chien is assisting the family. www.garrityfuneralhome.com Now let's move on to the sports section, starting with high school girls basketball. West sets eyes on state title. The Waterloo West Wahawks have unfinished business in Des Moines. According to West leading scorer Hallie Polk, only one ending can satisfy the Wahawks as they make their fourth consecutive Class 5A state tournament appearance. We want to end up in the championship game on Friday and win it, Pook said. A four-year starter for West, Pook and the Wahawks entered the previous three seasons with the same goal, but they fell just shy of a state title. We have, ev- we have had every outcome the last three years, Pook said. Freshman year, we made it to the semifinal. Sophomore year, we made it to the quarterfinal. And last year, we were runners-up. So there is only one we have not got yet, and that's the one we are aiming for. 
In the state title game last season, the Wahawks fell to Johnston 51-31 as the Dragons capped off an undefeated season with the championship trophy. This season, with Pook and five-star forward Sarah Williams back for one final shot at the state title, the Wahawks entered the season as their, fav- as their title favorite and with the dreams of their own undefeated run for the title. A loss to the Lynn Mars Lions on January 3rd, West's lone loss dashed those dreams, but taught West a valuable lesson. A part of you wants to be like, okay, we're ranked number one, we can do this, Williams said. But a part of you has to stay very humble, because at any given time, a team can give you your first loss. That's what happened to us. Williams added that to the Wahawks' loss to Linmar, humbled them, and reminded them how quickly the dream can be taken away. Since then, West has been on a tear, winning their last 14 games with an average margin of victory of 24.7 points. Although West will enter the state tournament as the third-ranked team in Class 5A, trailing number 1 Pleasant Valley and number 2 Johnston, Williams said a target remains on West's backs given their present their preseason billing. Everybody is gunning, Williams said. We're at preseason ranked number one. We were preseason ranked number one, and everyone wanted to beat us. A target is going to be on our back no matter what, especially with the kind of caliber that we have. Getting every team's best shot will be nothing new for West, according to head coach Dr. Anthony W. Papas, who said that the Wahawks have seen just about everything the state tournament has to offer. They are veterans, Papa said. They will be, this will be their fourth straight year, a fourth conference championship, four metro championships, fourth time to state. They are used to it. We are also used to people giving us their best shot. Papas joked that as long as they do not run into a team shooting as well as Waukee did in the regional championship, the Wahawks will be in line for success at state tournament. We just have to keep playing like we've been playing, Papa said. When West took down Waukee 69-68, to Papas noted that a few of his players were a little nicked up, but he said that he hopes the Wahawks will be fully healthy for their quarterfinal matchup at 11.45 a.m. on Monday. For the second year in a row, the Wahawks face Ankeny Centennial in the quarterfinal round of the state tournament. Last season, the sixth-seeded Wahawks upset the third-seeded Jaguars 67-59, as Williams and Pook both surpassed the 20-point mark, and then-junior Sierra Moore recorded a 17-point, 10-rebound double-double. The seeds flipped this season, with West claiming the third seed and Ankeny Centennial earning the sixth seed. We will be ready, Papa said. They know what's coming. We will be prepared. Papas added that he hopes for the, the West High student section to follow the Wahawks to the Wells Fargo Arena, like they always have, and as they did on Tuesday in the pivotal matchup against Waukee. Sticking with the theme of basketball, let's move to college men's basketball. Murray and Perkins cap Iowa's amazing rally past Michigan State. Chris Murray scored 26 points. Tony Perkins scored Iowa's last six points in overtime, and the Hawkeyes defeated Michigan State 112-106, to capping a remarkable rally that extended the game. Take a trip or two from Tony Perkins. Don't ever give up on the Iowa basketball team. 
At the end of the day, we believe in ourselves, the junior said Saturday after the Hawkeyes completed an improbable comeback and stunned Michigan State 112-106 to in overtime at the Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Down 11 points with one minute remaining in regulation? No problem. Down 6 with 30 seconds to play? No sweat. Need a, pl- need a putback or two to hold off the Spartans in overtime? No big deal. Iowa accomplished it all, ending a frustrating two-game slide on the road and overcoming the hot shooting touch of Michigan State with the de- with a determination and grit that Perkins said is just part of what his Hawkeye team is about. This team will fight to end, Perkins said. In the huddle late game, the only thing that guys were saying was we can get this done, and we did. That, Coach Fran McCaffrey, said that gave the Hawkeyes a chance. You can get a sense from guys if they are still fighting or if you need to convince them to keep fighting. I didn't have to convince them. In their minds, they were never out of it, and that makes it a lot easier because you can concentrate on what they need to do, McCaffrey said. We, can, we ran some late-game packages, some work, some didn't. Some don't, but sometimes they can soften a defense enough so players can just go make plays. That's what our guys did. They made plays on offense. They made plays on defense. To become just the fourth team in the NCAA Division I history to win a game after being down by 11 points, 11 or more points, with one minute in regulation, the Hawkeyes limited the Spartans to one field goal in the five-minute overtime that began the play- began after Peyton Sanford forced the overtime by burying a three-pointer to tie the game at 101-101, to with three seconds remaining in regulation. Stanford, who missed two potential game-winning three-point shots in the final five seconds of Iowa's 63-61 loss at Michigan State on January 26th, evened things up on Saturday on a play that designed for him to take the last look. I was surprised to take from to take a feed from Perkins, but they had sealed it off. He got it to Connor McCaffrey, who then who got it to me and it worked like it was supposed to, Sanford said. Sanford took the pass on a break and launched a running three pointer from the left side. It was a pretty special moment, Sanford said. The three-pointer was the fifth hit by the Hawkeyes in the final thirteen, in the final 38 seconds of regulation. Two more than Iowa had had in each of its last two games, and part of a season-high collection of 17, it took Saturday to secure a season split with the Spartans. In a furious final minute rally, Connor McCaffrey hit with 38 seconds to go to cut into a 96-86 deficit. Chris Murray, who led Iowa with 26 points, followed with one six-second later. Patrick McCaffrey hit a third with 21 seconds to play, and Connor McCaffrey connected on a connected on with a 10 seconds remaining to pull the Hawkeyes within a 100 to 68 score. Drawing a foul before any time ran off the clock, AJ Hoggard missed the second on two free throws to give Iowa and Sanford his game-tying opportunity. The miss was just the third in 17 free throws tries by Michigan State in the final two, two minutes and three seconds. The way it all played out, frustrated Spartans coach Tom Izzo, whose team wasted 31-point performance by Tyson Walker, 
from two lane violations that gave Iowa additional late-game free-throw chances to missed offensive rebounding, opportunities, and defensive lapses, Izzo saw plenty of issues. It was a combination of things, but when you're up 11 with less than a minute left, that's a lack of discipline, and that's the responsibility of the head coach, Izzo said. I'm proud of my guys. They played a tremendous offensive game, but we didn't finish the job. Iowa did. Five straight points in overtime separated the Hawkeyes and the Spartans. Connor McCaffrey broke a 103-103 when he hit the first of two free throws with with three minutes and 59 seconds to go in overtime. A basket by Murray followed by a Perkins dunk tip-in of a Murray miss left Iowa in front 108-103 with one minute and six seconds to go. Joey Hauser, who scored 18 for the Spartans, hit two free throws with 57 seconds remaining to pull Michigan State within three, a Perkins putback of a Murray miss with 26 seconds to go, gave Iowa a a two-possession advantage that Michigan State couldn't catch despite its 59.3% touch for the game. Perkins' scores came as Iowa beat Michigan State 17-11, 9-8 at its own game, grabbing a 15-4 advantage on the offensive glass that the Hawkeyes converted to a 29-4 advantage in the second chance pointers, in the second chance points. Of those offensive rebounds, Perkins had five in addition to scoring 24, including nine on three three three-pointers during a two-minute stretch in the second half to keep Iowa with a 60-58 score and joining Connor McCaffrey in dishing out six assists. That's, a f- that's five offensive boards from a guard, Coach McCaffrey said. That's the kind of thing that you need if you're going to beat these guys who didn't beat those guys, take care of the ball, and hold your own on the boards. We did those things, and it gave us a chance. It was a chance Perkins never doubted. We're going to fight you to the end, go for rebounds, dive for loose balls, Perkins said. We're never going to step fighting. We're going to stop fighting. That's just the way I play the game. Now on to college women's basketball. UNI wins final Valley Road game, top Murray State. Grace Bofoli put up her Missouri Valley Conference leading 12th double-double of the season as Northern Iowa rebounded from a loss Thursday to down Murray State 76-48 Saturday. Buffalo had 18 points and 11 rebounds as the Panthers, 19 and 8 overall and 14 and 4 in MVC, rebounded from a 5-point loss to Belmont Thursday that dropped UNI out of first place tie for the league lead. There are four teams in the Valley with 14 or more conference wins: UNI, Illinois State, Belmont, and Missouri State. After leading by 8 at half Saturday, 28-24, the Panthers put the racers in their rearview mirror in the third quarter by outscoring them 26-13 as UNI doubled up Murray State 48-24 in the second half. It was a great team win, UNI head coach Tanya Warren said. I like how we responded, but our but adversity is nothing new to this team. We've been through adversity throughout the course of the season, and we have handled it so well. So I'm not surprised, and I'm extremely proud of how we handled it. I thought in the second half, we played pretty good basketball on both sides of the ball. 
Maya McDermott added 13 points, while Cam Finley and Riley Gobley each added 9. Gobel had four blocked shots. It was the final road game of the regular season for UNI, as the Panthers will close at home against Southern Illinois Thursday at 6 p.m., before hosting Missouri State Saturday at 2 p.m. on Senior Day. Another college basketball, this time men's again. Oklahoma rallies, then runs past number 23, Iowa State. Jacob Groves led Oklahoma with 16 points as the Sooners knocked off number 23, Iowa State, 61-51 on Saturday. Trombones and tambourines, as the final seconds wound down in number 23, Iowa State's stunning 61-50 Big 12 loss to last place, Oklahoma Saturday at Hilton Coliseum, only the band produced loud sounds. The usually boisterous band simply tapped their toes towards the exit, shuffling off in stunned silence after the reeling Cyclones, 17-11, and 8-8 eight 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 Big 12, lost for the fifth time in the past six games before a sellout crowd of 14,267. We're going to learn a lot about who we are as a group and who we are as a people right now, and what our pride factor is based on what happened out there today, ISU head coach TJ Otzelberger said. We've got to dig deep. We've got to find a way, and that's what we're going to do. Cheers echoed through Hilton early as the Cyclones surged to a 14-3 lead on center Robert Jones' put-back dunk with, a 12 and 50, with 12 minutes and 53 seconds left in the first half. The Sooners had more turnovers than field goal attempts at that point, but they just meant but they managed to remain within striking distance as they trailed by just five, twenty-eight to twenty-three entering halftime. Iowa State did what they do, Oklahoma Oklahoma head coach Porter Moser said. They came out and punched us in the face, not literally, but with their effort. I really liked our fight back and I to get it back within five at half. So that's the first thing we're going to build on, our fight back. We've seen it in this building. We've seen it with this team, how hard they play. They get after you right out of the gate, and sometimes it's hard to adjust. Not on Saturday, and not for the Sooners, who went on a 19-4 run after halftime and led by double digits for most of the second half. Oklahoma drilled seven of 13 three-point attempts. In the final 20 minutes, and five came in relatively rapid succession as ISU saw five three-point saw five-point lead dissolve into a daunting 10-point deficit, with 10 with 13 minutes and 38 seconds remaining. The Sooners led by as many as 15 points in the second half as the Cyclones shot 26.9% from field and lost at home for the second time in the past three games. On the de- defensive side, it wasn't us," said ISU senior Gabe Kalsher who scored a team-high 12 points. So we have to look back at what we did wrong and just look ourselves in the mirrors. So what can we do better, and how can we flip the script? The Cyclones obviously need a feel-good plot twist immediately. They must turn around quickly and face West Virginia at 8 p.m. Monday in Hilton. The NCAA tournament bubble-bound Mountaineers started ISU's recent slide with a 76-71 win on February 8th in Morgantown. It's the time of the year, especially for some of our older guys, like we just need to step up and make plays, said Otzelberger, whose team was out-rebounded by double digits for the first time in conference play. 
we need to finish plays at the rim. We can't, we need to take shot, great shots and we need, we can't let our offensive disappointment affect how we defend. The Cyclones have done that before, so they can do it again, but time is running short if they're to make positive noise entering the Big 12 tournament and beyond. We don't ever want to play like that, especially at home in front of our fans, Otzelberger said. We have a lot more pride. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo and Cedar Falls Courier for Sunday, February 26th. I'm your reader, Will Potter. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thanks for listening.